let's just give a warm Christchurch welcome to Jamie Barone. And how about if we uh, pray for Jamie before she begins? So, Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to even be here this evening, Lord. We thank you for the gift of this beautiful day. And, Father God, we thank you for your dear daughter and our dear sister, Jamie Barone. We would ask, Father God, that you would speak mightily through her this evening. We would ask, Holy Spirit, you would fall afresh upon this place, upon each of us, that you would prepare our hearts, Father God, to receive what it is that you have laid upon Jamie's heart to share. And Father, we give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I am humbled and honored to be here sharing and a little bit terrified, but that's okay. It's all for the glory of God. I just, I love this behind the mask theme, and I'm so grateful that Carla has put it together. As women, we really do like to feel like we have it all together and look like we have it all together, or maybe it's just me. <laughs> My mom lives about four and a half hours away from me, and I noticed a long time ago that every time she would come to visit us, she would de-clean our microwave and stovetop. I mean, not just wipe them down. I mean, like, take apart the burners until they sparkled. She's the type of person that cleans for fun. I did not inherit that trait. Plus, I have four children from ages 5 to 10, so it's just a tornado all the time. And she's never critical of my homemaking, but I know that she just loves to look for ways that she can still mother me, even though I'm 36. But I really do sometimes want her to think that I have it all together. So I started making sure that I'd clean the microwave and stove before she'd arrive. <laughs> so I might have been hiding eight loads of laundry behind a closed door somewhere, but at least I felt like I was wearing that mask of being put together, because that microwave was clean. So now it's sort of a joke in our house that if my parents say they're coming, it's time to clean the microwave. Well, several weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast that drew my attention to a passage of scripture that I'd never really paid attention to before, and I just haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. So when Carla asked if I would consider sharing with you all, and I started to pray about what God might want me to share from my story, um, he brought this passage to mind, and it just perfectly encapsulates the struggles and trials that I'm tempted to keep behind the mask. In Jeremiah chapter 2, we find the Israelites in exile in Babylon. They continually disobey the Lord and his commands. And beginning in verse 13, the Lord says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have, dung, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And when you look up the difference between a cistern and a well, a well taps into a source of water naturally existing deep in the ground. A well will refill itself, whereas a cistern is merely a vessel designed to contain or hold water that is stagnant. If the cistern cracks or is broken, the water can become contaminated or can leak out and dry up. So for the Israelites in the desert, in a dry and arid climate, a broken cistern would inevitably lead to death. The Lord compares their choice to use broken cisterns or idolatry instead of choosing the spring of living water that he provides, a source of life that never dries up or fails. And I don't know about you all, but I have had lots of broken cisterns in my life. Things, 
things and idols that I've clung to in the futile hope that they would provide a fulfillment in a way that they never could, when instead I should have sought the Lord and allowed the living water to wash over every part of my life. For me, those broken cisterns have been strongholds in the form of body image, disordered eating by eating too much and too little, pride, the desire to please others, and even my marriage. Oftentimes, the idols in our life can be good things, things that are given to us as blessings from the Lord, but even the best and biggest blessings cannot save us, like the merciful blood of Jesus Christ. Our hearts were created for worship, but far too often, and whether or not we even realize it, we worship anything and everything except the only one who deserves it. So a little of my background. I'm from northwestern Ohio, born and raised on my family's farm. I was raised in a Christian home, and my family, going back on both sides, has strong roots in the faith. In fact, my great-great-grandfather laid the actual cornerstone for the little country Methodist church that I was raised in, and my parents still attend. My childhood was, was overall a happy and uneventful one, and my mom tells me that I asked Jesus to forgive my sins at three or four years old. But later on as a teenager, when I could fully grasp what this meant, I committed my life to Christ at a Youth for Christ National Convention. My lifelong struggle with body image began as an overweight child. It's no secret that the words we say to our children have incredible power and influence, and I'll never forget the pain and hurt inflicted by the words of classmates and even by some of my family members. The desire to please others has always been a stumbling block for me, and the lack of acceptance from my peers was very painful. In my teenage years, the desire to fit in with those around me increased, as did the hurtful and destructive words about how I looked from others in my class, on my sports teams, and shamefully even from coaches. When I was 14 or 15, I started to become obsessed with the idea that losing weight would give me the sense of worth and acceptance I craved. So I memorized lists of foods and their caloric content and began counting calories obsessively. Not surprisingly, as I lost weight, I didn't feel fulfilled. I loved playing sports, particularly volleyball, but I was consuming an amount of food that was far less than what was appropriate for my age and activity level. I did have Christ in my life, but he was not at the center, and I was wrapped up in the idolatry of body image and diet culture, and I sought worth in how little I could eat to get by, how much I could exercise, and the size of my clothes. Perfectionism, control, self-will, and pride were all broken cisterns that I desperately tried to drink life from. The extreme pressure I put on myself, the subsequent lack of fulfillment, and also the mounting tension and stressful awareness of my parents, of the de- deterioration of my parents' marriage brought everything to a breaking point. And since depriving myself wasn't helping me feel better, I started to seek comfort and fulfillment by binge eating. Food is a good thing created by God for our enjoyment to demonstrate his creativity. We only have to look outside the room for that. And to sustain us to do his will. But it had become a stronghold in my life. For the better part of the next 20 years, throughout college, my early 20s, and during tough seasons of postpartum depression and navigating motherhood and feeling inadequate to do so, I felt trapped in a never-ending cycle of seeking solace by eating anything and everything. And that's not really a hyperbole. Only to experience very limited and momentary satisfaction, followed by overwhelming guilt, shame, and disappointment. I knew in my heart that only God could fulfill me in the way I wanted food to, but yet I felt powerless to stop the cycle. I identify so much with Paul in Romans chapter 7, 
beginning in verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And then in verse 24, he says, What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. For years and years, I cried out to God to take this struggle from me, knowing full well that he could. And I'm sure each of us would agree we'd rather have him take away completely the biggest temptations in our lives. But we've already been given all that we need to win the battle. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and 14 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out of it so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I think it's so interesting in this passage that resisting temptation is immediately followed by an instruction to stay away from idolatry. There's such an undeniable correlation between the two. We cannot resist temptation in our own power, but if we are in Christ, he gives us the power to do so. Furthermore, if I'm not consistently spending time in prayer, getting into the word, and storing God's truth in my heart, I'm so much more likely to fall victim to the lies the enemy tries to tell about me, tell about who I am and what will satisfy me. As believers, we are called to be holy as he is holy, and part of that is aligning our thoughts and hearts with his. Just shifting gears a little. The night I met my husband Rob in 2008 at a young adult event here at Christ Church, he was a fairly new believer and was giving his testimony. I was blown away by the way the Lord had changed his heart and his life. I had prayed for my future husband for years, first and foremost, that if he did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that his heart would be prepared and the Lord would draw him close. I knew the night we met, without a doubt, this was the man I had prayed for. Within a year, we were married. Six weeks after our wedding, we found out our first child, Liam, was on the way. Two years after Liam was born, Gavin arrived. Two years after that, Colin. And 17 months after that, Greta. And the comedian Jim Gaffigan says, if you want to know what having a fourth child is like, imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. So he's not wrong. All four are evidence that God's plans and timing definitely are superior to ours. For as much as we had stumbled into parenthood and most days were spent in survival mode, we were and still are so thankful for our children and the life God has given us. Rob's an amazing father, and from my perspective, we had arrived at the ultimate destination, the dream I'd always had of being in a solid Christian marriage and raising a family had come to fruition. So I wasn't all prepared then for the shock I felt when my husband confessed to me and to the Lord after years of marriage that he had an addiction to pornography that was out of control and he needed help. Well, I was thankful that the Holy Spirit had led him to confess compared to other ways I could have found out. The confusion and hurt were very real, and I laid awake at night with a mind full of questions I wasn't sure I wanted to ask because I didn't know if I wanted the answers. Rob found a group of Christian men to keep him accountable and to go through a program together to break down the causes and ramifications of his addiction, and I was grateful for all of that. But walking through this fire was incredibly isolating to me as a wife. I felt far too embarrassed and devastated to share my pain with anyone. As we began to seek godly counsel, healing, and reconciliation, 
the Lord pressed on my heart, perhaps I have been holding my husband and my marriage in some kind of idealized view, not unlike an idol, instead of walking beside him as heirs together of God's merciful grace. One of my heroes of the faith is Elizabeth Elliott. She has a wonderful book called Let Me Be a Woman, in which she says these words, Who is it you marry? You marry a sinner. There's nobody else to marry. That ought to be obvious enough, but when you love a man as you love yours, it's easy to forget. You forget it for a while, and then when something happens that ought to remind you, you find yourself wondering what's the matter. How could this happen? Where did things go wrong? They went wrong back in the Garden of Eden. Settle it once and for all. Your husband is a son of Adam. Acceptance of him, of all of him, includes acceptance of his being a sinner. He is a fallen creature in need of the same kind of redemption all the rest of us are in need of and liable to all the temptations which are common to man. I really feel the Lord has led me to share this along with Rob's encouragement, I might add, to, um, for a couple of reasons. The first one is that we're called many times in Scripture to bear each other's burdens and to lift each other up in prayer. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 9-12 through 12 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. The New Testament's filled with examples of the followers of Christ encouraging each other and lifting each other up in prayer. We are not meant to walk this life alone. I can easily think of dozens of women, godly women, who with great discretion would have come alongside me in my time of need and approached the throne of grace in, in prayer with me and for me. But sadly, I let my pride in the image I wanted to project um, keep me from doing so, and I regret that so much. True vulnerable accountability within the body of Christ is so, so important, and I'll never sh- again shy away from it. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I was so moved by Angie Good's testimony two weeks ago and how she, even though she has this unimaginable trial, just talked so much about the joy and privilege it is for her to pray for other people. That really humbled me and challenged me that there's always uh, room to improve in my prayer life for others. Another reason I feel the Lord leading me to share this part of my story is the knowledge I have now, which I did not have at the time, and it's a sobering reality, which should not be a surprise to any of us, that pornography has a disturbingly increasing pervasiveness in Christian homes and marriages and threatens the inner sanctum of God's design for marriage, the most personal and private part of the marriage union. In fact, within the past year, two of my nearest, dearest, and oldest friends have come to me asking for prayer as their marriages are in, a, are in various states of crisis as a result of the husband's similar addiction. In one situation, my friend has a valid concern that her husband's going to lose his job as a result. And in the other situation, the husband's addiction paved the way for other sexual sin, resulting in losing his job and most likely his career in ministry. So if you think of it, please pray for my friends Kate and Liz. My heart's broken for them. Neither of these dear women knew at the time what I had been through, but I'm just thankful to God that I was able to be there for them and comfort them in their time in need. The enemy is indeed prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour, and we need to be alert and of sober mind and continually on our knees for our husbands, sons, grandsons, sons-in-law, even our daughters and ourselves. I love the reminder a couple weeks ago as we finished our sermon series on Samson 
that temptation doesn't discriminate and no one is immune. In fact, the closer we walk with the Lord, the bigger the target is on our backs. For many years, I had not regularly been praying for my husband's purity and resistance to temptation. And I'm not suggesting that his sin is a result of this, because that's between him and the Lord. But I can and should be praying for a hedge of protection around him, and the same for my children, that the attacks of the evil one would be thwarted, and that in the inevitable moment of temptation, that they would choose the way of life instead of the way to death and destruction, and that they would desire to live a life of holiness and purity. Statistics would show that I'm not the only one in this room to have weathered this kind of storm. So I just want to say clearly, for anyone who made to hear, as it's not talked about very much, but I know that I needed to hear it once, that you're not alone. Your husband's sin is not your fault. Your pain is real and valid, but our Heavenly Father sees you and cares deeply for you and your marriage and has the power to heal all wounds. There is hope. Later on in the same book, Elizabeth Elliot says, but there is one thing which enters into all of life, one thing which will keep us from idealizing life's best and will make bearable life's worst, and that is the cross. Praise be to God, there's no sin, shame, brokenness, or pain too great to be forgiven and redeemed by Christ's love for us, manifested in his sacrifice on the cross to pay the ransom for our sins. Psalm 71:15 says, My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long. The Lord has been incredibly faithful in my life and has brought healing and restoration I could, that could never have taken place otherwise. And I give him all the praise and glory for it. It's only by God's merciful goodness that I experienced a breakthrough in a nearly 20-year struggle with binge eating and that it's now been over a year since I last binged and I can have hope and confidence in Christ that it'll never happen again. By the goodness of God, my parents celebrate 38 years of marriage in a couple weeks, and that is nothing short of a miracle. Because of his goodness, I recently finished my first year homeschooling my four kids, one with special needs, and though there were many days when I locked myself in my room to cry, his grace was sufficient and his power was made perfect in my weakness. And by the goodness of God, my husband and I have experienced healing and restoration beyond what we ever could have imagined. The Lord has seen us through the storm and we're thankful and full of praise that our marriage is truly stronger now than it ever was going before going through it. In fact, Rob not only approved of me sharing this part of our story, he encouraged it. I didn't really want to. And he has a heart for other, people, for other couples going through the same thing. I'm so proud of how he is following the Holy Spirit's nudging to use his story to further the kingdom of God. And this summer, we'll start leading a recovery group for men dealing with a porn addiction. And by the way, that is a commercial. And I would gladly give more information if anyone needs it. There's a great song by the Gettys called Living Water. I'm not going to sing it, sorry. But it says this, Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. There's a river that flows with mercy and love, bringing joy to the city of our God. There our hope is secure. Do not fear anymore. Praise the Lord of living waters. Praise be to God. We don't have to have it all together. We don't need to hide behind any mask especially now. We can be honest about our battles as we are called to pray for and minister to each other. Our hope is secure, and I'm so thankful for the mercy of our Heavenly Father who says there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So I'd like to close in prayer. Father God, I do thank you and praise you for you are the living water. I thank you for the ways that you've worked in my life. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal to each of us the idolatry 
that we need to flee from. Forgive us, Lord, for every time we put something in a higher priority than you. And Father, I also lift up anyone here whose marriage may be in trouble. Father, I pray that you would um, comfort these women, give them peace and hope. And I just thank you, Lord. We thank you that our hope is secure. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. In your heavenly name I pray. Amen.